Welcome to Kidney Talk, a program of Renal Support Network, a show that streams health, happiness, and hope to the kidney community. You can download all Kidney Talk shows from iTunes and find a variety of resources to help you navigate this illness at rsnhope.org. Please welcome your host, Lori Hartwell, who has lived with kidney disease since the age of two. All right. Well, welcome to Kidney Talk. Um, today we're going to be speaking about a very important topic. It's uh, you know, we're going to be talking about infections. And today we're going to be speaking to Dr. Philip Sakowski. He's a phys- uh, infectious disease doctor at Cedar Sinai, and we're very excited to have him on the show to share his knowledge. So, welcome to the show, Dr. Sakowski. Thank you very much. So tell us a little bit about, you work a lot um, with people who have a transplant. And today I really want to focus on, you know, pre and post transplant and understanding, you know, infections. So can you tell, uh, give us an overall of, um, you know, the types of infections that patients can get? Uh, I'll be glad to. Uh, Basically, I work uh, uh, very closely with either transplant recipients after they've received their transplants or potential transplant recipients, both of uh, kidney, liver, uh, heart, and lung. Uh, Focusing on the kidney transplant, it's really quite similar to other uh, organ transplants that are not bone marrow transplants compared with the other organs I mentioned. What we look for in somebody in a pre-transplant evaluation is any infection in the past, however distant, that might come back and cause a problem after transplantation. Uh, the issue with transplantation is uh, it's quite wonderful and people uh, uh, have renewed lives, uh, is that they're given medications to suppress or weaken the immune system so that the organ, the kidney in particular, is not rejected as a foreign organ, which it really is. It's because of the medications that can suppress the immune system that the risk of infection is increased. We see this particularly with infections in the past that can lay dormant uh, for years to decades, like tuberculosis. For example, if I had tuberculosis as a child um, and was never treated for it, and if I were to get a transplant, it could then reawaken or reactivate after my immune system is weakened and uh, cause a problem after transplantation. So oftentimes patients, whether they're aware of it or not, are screened for old, uh, dormant, or sleeping, or what we call latent infections, particularly things like tuberculosis or odd fungus infections. I'm not referring to coughs or colds, which everybody gets, but more of the serious uh, infections um, like the fungus or the tuberculosis type infections. Most other infections are not really relevant. Uh, after transplant, uh, with rare exception. Well, you know, I had um, an ulcer when I was being evaluated for a transplant, and you know, they tested it, and luckily, it wasn't the H. pylori um, type of um, ulcer. Uh, you know, because I guess that would have put me at risk, at well, of having some kind of infection in my stomach. H. pylori is a bacterial infection that typically, I mean, it's important to know about, but usually wouldn't present a major issue post transplant. And the one thing to bear in mind is even when we run into these infections after transplant, uh, you know, we uh, deal with them and treat them. We're just trying to decrease the risk of infection post-transplant. Talk a little bit about um, CMV, because I I hear a lot of patients who have CMV. I had CMV before the antiviral medication. And is it much easier to treat now? I mean, is it a big risk factor? Because you don't feel very good when you have CMV. (laughs) 
Well, there's two very, very common viruses, CMV, which stands for cytomegalovirus, and EBV, which stands for Epstein-Barr virus. Okay. Uh, if you will, they're cousins of one another. And by age 30, most Americans have been exposed to both of them just from childhood exposure or from uh, uh, just beginning to date and the like. So by age 30, depending on where you grew up, most people have already been exposed to CMV. CMV can lay dormant in the system or sleep and inactive. And if your immune system becomes weakened, such as post-transplant, it can reawaken, or we call that reactivating. And if it reawakens or reactivates, you then can get virus reproduction or virus infection in the system, uh, which can cause anything from a mild flu-like symptom uh, or illness to the CMV uh, infecting other major organs in the body, like the intestines. Uh, this is most common um, in people who receive a donor where the donor had had CMV and the patient or the recipient had never seen CMV. Most virus infections, if you're not immune to them, if you get exposed to them as an adult, you get it more severely. So the two types of CMV infections we see are, one, somebody who's had CMV as a kid and it reawakens or reactivates after a transplant, and then the other is somebody who's never been exposed to CMV, and they get exposed to it from the donor who had been. In those cases, where the donor had the CMV and the patient or recipient had never seen it, we tend to see the more serious virus infections uh, and manifestations of the virus inflaming uh, and infecting other parts of the body. Uh, but even in those which tend to be a little bit more serious, versus uh, those that are laid dormant and reawakened, we, we treat it. They're now very effective antivirus medications. They're all closely related. Intravenously, the medication is gancyclovir, and the pill form of that gancyclovir is valgancyclovir or valcite. There are some people who are put on that medication in a preventative fashion, uh, particularly those who had never seen CMV and whose donor had, because they're at the highest risk, they will receive the valcite pill to prevent the CMV from coming back, from coming and, uh, and, and infecting you. And for those people either who have reactivation or reawakening of their own CMV or whom acquired the donor CMV, we treat them with the intravenous medication or the oral medication to kill the virus and prevent it from doing any damage to the system. Well, you know, one of the things that I hear often from, you know, people in our group is that, you know, they get so afraid when they leave the hospital with the transplant. They're so worried about infection. Can you just go over some basics, what people need to look out for and do to protect themselves? Yeah, that's a very, very common concern, which is uh, I'm given this new lease on life. I'm delighted, but I'm told I'm at risk for infection. So people get a little, perhaps sometimes reasonably, but overly anxious as far as the risk to themselves. You know, the real key is to enjoy the new life and the new lease on life and lead as full and as complete a uh, existence as you can, given your health status. It's actually very hard to catch infections. Uh, after transplant. Uh, what's really important is hand washing. Mm -hmm. um, so basic, to, too. <laughs> yeah, so basic maneuvers to prevent infection, whether you're a transplant recipient or not. 
hand washing is very important. Um, if uh, wound care is very important because the risk of wound infection, like a cut of a knife in the hand at home, uh, obviously avoiding other people who have active respiratory infections, but that doesn't mean one couldn't go out to the movies or go out to a restaurant and enjoy, uh, you know, being out and about. Uh, food is very important in that it uh, should be cooked. Certain raw food products, uh, which have increased risk of carrying infection, such as raw eggs, which sometimes are in uh, food products like Caesar salad, uh, raw meat products, uh, raw seafood or oysters, um, non-pasteurized milk. Uh, any of these products can carry different kinds of bacteria. So you can still have a full, healthful diet whilst yet while avoiding not, uh, foods that are raw or have potential of carrying bacteria. Most people at transplant will be given a list of things, uh, foods they should avoid, and it's very easy to avoid the raw undercooked meat or eggs or non-pasteurized milk or milk products such as cheeses and uh, decrease the risk of requiring infection from foods. You know, one of the things that I practice is I always eat at restaurants that are reputable, too, because, you know, you can go out to eat or, you you know, there's so much food poisoning that happens. Um, you have to be really careful about that. And that's what, you know, some of the things I tell other patients is, you know, don't go eat off a taco truck. <laughs> that's not reputable. It's just not really a good idea when you have a transplant. Would you agree with that? I mean, uh, you're absolutely <laughs> correct. And I think everybody should observe those precautions. <laughs> If food is not kept at the right temperature, bacteria can reproduce, so the concept of, quote, food poisoning uh, can occur for anybody. Certainly, if somebody is a transplant recipient, they're more likely to get it more severely. So I think common sense and prudent judgment, uh, such as, you know, reputable places, uh, thoroughly uh, uh, heated food products. Uh, food trucks now, I guess, are much more popular than they ever used to be. Uh, and uh, if it's well-maintained and the food is fresh and well-heated, it should be a safe thing to do, but certainly one has to use judgment in assessing the quality of the place they're eating, whether it be a food truck or a restaurant. I always look at how the truck's painted. If it's chipping, I think, you know what? And not that I eat off food trucks all the time, but I'm like, you know, it's really on how a place looks, too, and if it's kept clean, because it is. I mean, food poisoning happens all across the country every single day, and it's just a little bit more difficult to recover when you're immune-suppressed. Um, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, wearing a mask and once the appropriate time to wear a mask. Um, and, and, you know, especially when you're traveling, um, I always carry a mask with me. And if somebody's sick next to me, I might put that mask on or uh, try to protect myself. But what advice do you give your patients? Um, I think that um, certainly uh, respiratory spread of infection, particularly viruses, is common. Uh, for example, if somebody has influenza and, and coughs in my face, I'm likely to get influenza if I haven't been vaccinated. Uh, overall, though, uh, wearing a mask is usually overkill. Uh, the main exceptions to that would be somebody who recently got uh, an extra dose, if you will, of immune suppression, or their doctors say they're very immune suppressed. And that should be limited, however, to closed, uh, cramped quarters, um, like an airplane um, for a prolonged uh, flight. 
although typically it's not necessary, but certainly having in the pocket, and if you happen to sit next to somebody who's coughing and sneezing, it uh, wouldn't be unreasonable to ask to change seats or to put the mask on. But on the whole, wearing a mask uh, for uh, usual day-to-day activities or going out or elevators or restaurants or movies uh, is really not necessary. Well, and, and how important is a flu shot? I mean, I always get the flu shot, but I heard this last year, it didn't really protect that many people. Uh, I think getting the appropriate vaccinations is crucial for anybody, particularly somebody's immune system is, is on the weaker side, and a yearly flu vaccine is essential. Uh, this last year, however, the vaccine was not as potent as it could have been to protect for the strains that were uh, around in the air. So um, the protection rate was not great this year because they have to make up the vaccine trying to guess what strain will be uh, running around next year. And sometimes they uh, don't hit it quite on the nail. Uh, But I would still endorse everybody to get the flu vaccine, not the nasal vaccine, which is a live virus, but the shot, which is killed virus. Um, But I think that I've seen very bad influenza in patients post-transplant, and we can't, uh, um, you have to give the utmost respect to influenza. It can be a fatal disease in someone whose immune system is not strong. Talking about vaccines, what about um, shingles? Um, You know, luckily I haven't gotten shingles, but I have friends who've had shingles. Are you allowed to get the vaccine if you're a transplant patient? Well, there's two basic categories of vaccine. One is what's called killed vaccine, and the other is a live virus or attenuated. Attenuated means weakened. So the killed vaccine products are always safe. That's where they take the germ and they uh, expose it to chemicals or other processes, which totally destroys the germ. So there's no way it can cause infection. Or they break it down into its particles and then they give you a a tiny piece of it, and there's no way that can cause infection. There are some vaccines, limited, however, that take the virus and make it weak so that it's still a virus, but it's weakened. And those vaccines cannot be given to a transplant recipient because potentially if your immune system is weaker, the virus, albeit weakened, can then uh, cause you actual infection because your body can't keep it in check. The current vaccines that are live virus, which tend to be commonly used, would be either the chickenpox vaccine or the shingles vaccine, which should not be given. Uh, The measles, mumps, rubella vaccine, which thankfully everybody gets as a kid. Um, And then some other vaccines, which are usually more limited, such as the yellow fever vaccine, which is used for travel to areas of the world where there's yellow fever. So, uh, please, it's important to get all the proper, uh, appropriate immunizations, but the patient or recipient should always ask, is it a killed vaccine or a live vaccine, and never take a live vaccine without uh, without uh, special approval by your transplant doctor. I know. It's good to know. I, I'm trained to, whenever I take a new medication or anything, oh, ask my nephrologist, ask my transplant physician, because, uh, you know, not all medical specialties know the nuances of somebody with a transplant. And uh, you have to double check. Well, I'm a huge animal lover, and I have three dogs, two cats, and a parrot. (laughs) And can you tell us a little bit about, you know, uh, some strategies of dealing with pets to keep us, you know, to keep safe? 
Absolutely. I think pets are awesome, and uh, they're really fun uh, to have. They love you. You love them. And I would encourage anybody who has their pets to continue to keep them. Uh, the main issue really is handling uh, of the pet, particularly with regard to their feces or bowel movements. Uh, certainly with uh, dogs, it's usually less of a problem because you take them for a walk. Uh, but one should always wash the hands and wear gloves if you're picking up the uh, uh, the stool from the dog that you take for a walk. Cats in particular can carry a parasite called toxoplasmosis. So as far as changing the kitty litter, it's important to change it frequently, preferably daily. Uh, if there's somebody else in the house that can change the kitty litter, I would prefer that they do it. If not, certainly uh, recipients can do it wearing gloves and careful hand-washing afterwards. Uh, most other pets are, are equally safe, uh, including birds, uh, but if possible, uh, gloves and a mask should be used when you change the bird cage because sometimes the poop can uh, get in the air and you can breathe it in or just have somebody else change it. So it, it's very, uh, the common pets are easy to take care of with a little bit of common sense. About the only pets that are really high risk would be reptiles, such as snakes or lizards or turtles, because they often can carry salmonella, which mm -hmm. can be a nasty bacteria. And those I'd either prefer a recipient not have as a pet or that somebody else definitely take care of them. What about fish, like cleaning the fish tank? Um... Cleaning the fish tank, again, uh, can be acceptable wearing gloves. There are bacteria in the water um, that can cause infections in the hand, particularly if there's any cuts. Uh, if you're living alone, fish tanks would be fine, if, uh, but wearing gloves and being careful to wash afterwards. Uh, if not, again, here I think it, you can rely on somebody's loved one or a housemate to clean the fish tank for you. Well, and you know, it, it is, I mean, I think one of the biggest things that I am worried about is when I get an open cut. And I was, um, I go to the gym and I had an open cut on my elbow. I had like a little blister and it was cut. And I mean, I cover that <laughs> because that's how you get an infection is by having an open wound. And especially like being at the gym, you're really at risk because there's a lot of bugs running around that place. And yeah, I think, you know, we tend to forget that the skin is actually a very important protection of our body. It's almost like a saran wrap protective barrier for all of us. So any breaks in the skin can allow normal skin bacteria or other bacteria found in the environment to get in under the skin and cause infection. I've seen infections in legs of 18-year-olds who are otherwise very healthy who get a cut in their leg, uh, but certainly a transplant recipient would be at greater risk. So I think uh, important uh, care of the wound, such as washing with soap and water, applying a topical um, antibiotic cream and a sterile dressing, and watching it and changing it regularly would be very important to prevent infection. Are there any risks for being physically active in sports? Are there? You hear a lot of things about locker rooms having infections. Any suggestions you can give? Yeah, I think that that's probably an overblown concern. I think uh, being physically active is really important as far as staying in shape, keeping the muscles in tone, which gives you exercise and stamina and energy. Um, as far as locker rooms, um, I think sharing towels would be the main thing. Locker rooms tend to be 
more scary in the mind than in in practice. <laughs> um, not sharing razor blades, not sharing towels, and otherwise, I think it, it's fine to go to the gym, and I would encourage it for everybody. Yeah, don't share makeup. <laughs> I know uh, I throw a prom every year for teenagers with kidney disease, and you know we have makeup like is donated, and they're like, it's brand new, so we give it to them, and they're like, oh, here, try it. I'm like, no, 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 don't share the makeup. That's not a good idea. <laughs> Keep it for yourself. <laughs> Um, can you tell us a little bit about the risks and the warning signs of infection? Because um, I've, I've heard on several occasions that um, I had a friend call me as a transplant. She's like, you know, I got 102 fever and I don't feel good. I'm like, why are you calling me? <laughs> you need to be calling the doctor. And um, I know there's this, uh, several cases where people wait too long when they have a sign of an infection. What are the warning signs? Well, once again, uh, common sense goes a long way. I think if somebody sort of is sneezing and, and coughing and has a typical cold, uh, that that's reasonable uh, for a day or two. You don't have to call with every sniffle. But I think generally speaking, any uh, fever, particularly prolonged fever for more than 24 to 48 hours, uh, or any high fever uh, that's not typically associated with a cough or a cold, uh, the best thing to do, it's really important to call early and often rather than to uh, call late because influenza, uh, when it's influenza season, can seem like just a bad cold but can really be very nasty and dangerous. Uh, so uh, persistent fevers or high fevers uh, or feeling uh, poorly in general, I think it's better and I think that the Transplant doctors or the kidney doctors or the general doctors wouldn't mind hearing from a transplant recipient uh, a little too often than not often enough. Well, and isn't it true if you have a transplant, um, it sometimes can mask a fever? You know, your your fever may not be as high. I mean, one time I was not feeling well. I think I didn't show that I had a fever, but I had chills, and I ended up having an infection, but, you know, it didn't show up in a temperature. It showed up because I was chilled. Uh, chills, particularly shaking chills where the whole body is shaking, we call that rigors, are a very important uh, sign or symptom or manifestation of infection or sepsis. Uh, oftentimes people are on prednisone or other medications which can blunt or decrease the body's ability to generate a fever. So having a lower threshold or tolerance to call particularly if there's any signs of chills or sweats or shaking chills uh, would be would be very important. Now, I just want to close with, um, you know, the topic about antibiotics. Because, you know, a lot of people believe if they just take an antibiotic, it will get rid of an infection. Can you just give a, a little closing statement on, you know, what patients can do when they have something, but don't ask for antibiotics if you don't need them <laughs> because it's 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 very dangerous you don't have enough um, we don't have enough antibiotics to treat some of the superbugs well i give antibiotics for a living so i love them but they have to be used <laughs> prudently and uh, with common sense a lot of infections we see are viruses and nothing helps a virus uh, except chicken soup uh, um, although influenza we have a medication for Herpes viruses we have a medication for, and CMV we have a medication for. But the typical respiratory viruses we'll see, excepting influenza, there's no real treatment for. So oftentimes people ask for antibiotics uh, just because they're feeling unwell, 
and it's just a virus that needs to run its course, and taking the antibiotics, which only work against bacteria, uh, is ineffective and can increase the development of resistant bacteria. Uh, but one shouldn't hesitate to take antibiotics if it's truly deemed necessary for fear of making resistant bacteria, because you need to treat whatever infection you have. No, that's so true. I mean, it's um, it gets kind of scary when you hear about these different infections and you become resistant. And um, so the goal is to stay well so you don't need any antibiotics. <laughs> the goal is to stay well, to eat well, to exercise, to wash your hands, love your pets and, and your loved ones and enjoy life. Exactly. Well, thank you so much for uh, your knowledge and information. And hopefully I will never have to come see you um, at Cedar sinai That's my uh, transplant center. But if I do, I know I would be in great hands. So thank you very much. Well, it's a pleasure. And I hope all your uh, people listening uh, enjoy life and lead a full, long, and healthy life. Thanks for listening to Kidney Talk, a program of Renal Support Network. Please make sure to find us on Facebook or sign up for our newsletter at rsnhope.org. Kidney Talk is intended for informational purposes only. It is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment from your physician. Always seek the advice of your own health care provider regarding your medical condition.